Hey, hey, what's up? It's Anise here from Mindful Sales Training. How have you been? Hustling? Mindfully? I hope so. Right, press pause and go get a pen and paper. You will have to make notes for this interview. I'll wait for you. Got it? Good. Now, I was lucky enough to catch up with persuasion expert Steve Martin. Steve Martin's a New York Times bestselling author. He's regularly featured in the Harvard Business Review and he's worked with business, government, and nonprofit organizations around the world. Steve is co-author of a brilliant new book, Small Big, Small Changes That Spark Big Influence. In the following interview, Steve is going to give you tips that don't cost a penny to implement and that spark people to be influenced by you. So let's head on over to the interview now. Steve, hello, Anis here. How are you? I'm good, Anise. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm very well, very well. I loved your book, The Small Big. I thought it was brilliantly practical. Good. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. This idea, The Small Big, Mm -hmm. uh, as the title of your book is. What is it and why does it matter, Steve? Well, A Small Big is essentially any small change that a a communicator makes, perhaps to the words that they use when they're proposing something, or the timing in which they make a request, or the way that they frame a presentation, that leads to a big difference in whether the recipient, the audience, will actually uh, attend to and say yes and be attracted by that proposition, or that request, or that presentation. Uh, And we call it a small big, because oftentimes we think that it's only the big things that make the big differences. And it turns out that when you look at the research some 20, decade, uh, 20 years or so of social scientific research, we find that uh, oftentimes it's the smallest things, paying attention to those small details, that leads to these big outsized effects. Um, so that's a small big. It's a small change that makes a big difference to your influence. Okay, all right. And uh, you also say, uh, um, Steve, you say successful influence is governed by the context more so rather than cognition. What do you mean by this and how can we use this information? Yeah, I think that's uh, an important point you picked up on. Yeah, I, 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 you know, one of my favorite phrases is this idea that context will frequently trump cognition. And one of the reasons for that is that we live in a world that is the single most information overloaded, stimulation saturated environment. You know, the idea that we are going to be able to pay attention to every piece of information, every communication, every stimulus that's presented to us is naive. You know, uh, you know, oftentimes information just crowds out other information that's available to us. And so it's changes in contexts that we find uh, evidence for that that changes people's minds. Um, It leads to this rather interesting, sounds rather sinister, but if used ethically and responsibly, I think it can be a real uh, valuable tool in any any communicator's toolkit, is this idea that it's entirely possible for us to change people's behavior without actually having to change their minds. Hmm, Interesting, that's interesting. And uh, in chapter eight, Steve, you say one of the fundamental principles of social influence involves the relationship between commitment and consistency. Mm -hmm. Can you explain this principle and provide an example of how this can be applied to persuading customers to buy from you? Yes, absolutely. So the fundamental principle of social influence, this idea of commitment and consistency, is is that people want to live up to those self-ascribed traits and commitments that they make, particularly those commitments that they make publicly 
and effortfully to others. And there's very good reasons. You know, we have names for people that say that they're going to do something and then don't follow through on their commitments. So to be consistent with one's commitment is a very desirable feature of our behavior. <clears throat> so how might you use this insight? Well, I led a series of studies a, a couple of years ago here in the United Kingdom that sought to identify small commitments that we could ask people to make that significantly increase the likelihood that they would be consistent with that commitment and turn up for, in this case, appointments to their doctors and hospital uh, uh, departments. Lots of people, for whatever reason, fail to show for their hospital appointments. It costs an awful lot of money. We found that if we made two small changes, first, simply ask people when they make an appointment to repeat back the time and day verbally. That small commitment becomes something that they then encounter interpersonal pressure to be consistent with in the future. Secondly, uh, when people were making an appointment, they were given an appointment card. Instead of the receptionist writing the time and day of the appointment, we asked the individual to write it down themselves. That's an active, effortful commitment. We made those two small changes. We measured 18% reductions in failed appointments. Uh, that's an 18% reduction in an £800 million problem. That's a very small change that leads to a, a huge, huge difference. Huge. How might you use that in business? Well, <clears throat> sometimes in business it's not enough just to get someone to say yes to you, um, particularly if there's going to be a gap between them saying yes and the time when they're going to carry out that commitment in the future. So anything you can do to make that commitment actionable, effortful, and ideally public to others. For example, you know, if you go to a meeting with someone... Um, who else will know at the end of the meeting what's been agreed between you and that potential client or customer? Because the extent to which other people know increases the likelihood that that commitment will actually take action. Small thing that someone can do in a, in a meeting or during an interaction with a client that will oftentimes lead to big differences in whether that commitment will actually get followed through. Hmm. Interesting. And, um, and also uh, you, in your book, The Small Big, there's a great story, I love this one, about the reverend who wanted to raise money for his church. It's, it's brilliant. Can you explain why that works? Yeah. Inspired, yes. This, this guy uh, was inspired. <clears throat> so briefly, uh, this is a, a clergyman. He, he has a parish up in North Yorkshire. And he found himself in a situation that I think many clergy do, which is that he needed to persuade his congregation to donate some more funds, money, resources to fix the church roof and, uh, you know, uh, attend to repairs, these kind of things. Of course, he's done this many times before. You know, he's had to ask people to put their hand in their pocket. Here's what he did one Sunday morning a couple of years ago. <clears throat> Instead of asking people to make a donation, he actually handed out the collection plate that was already full of money, crisp £10 notes, and invited his congregation to take a £10 note each. It's kind of like the uncollection, if you like. Uh, and, you know, clearly people are surprised by this. It's a very unexpected turn of events. And, and he explained it as follows. He said, look, what I'd like you to do is take a £10 note, invest it in whatever way you feel that you could make a return, and my hope is that you will bring back that £10 and some of the return that you actually make in a few months' time um, as a contribution. It, it's the reason it worked, and by the way, six months later, he collected some eight or £9,000 <laughs> as a result of giving out £500. It's astonishing. Why did it work? Here's, there's two reasons why it worked. <clears throat> the first is steeped in a fundamental principle of our psychology. We give back to others 
the form of behavior that they have given to us first. It's, it's the universal rule of reciprocation. If you want to influence and persuade someone, if you want to get someone to say yes, don't think about how they might be able to help you. Instead, think about what can you do to help them first? Because in the context of that obligation, people say yes more to those that they owe. There's a second reason, and this, I think, is the, the inspirational aspect of what the clergyman did. He also understood that people pay attention most to those things that they are given first that are surprising or unexpected. The surprise value of being given £10 rather than being expected to put £10 into uh, the collection box, that was the surprise element. It, it amplified this reciprocity between him and his congregation and as a result led to this extraordinary return that he got um, some six months later. That's wonderful story. It is. It's wonderful. It's a perfect example of that reciprocity rule. Now, startups don't have a lot of money to give away. So can you explain what could go wrong with this methodology of, of, the, of the reciprocity? Well, what could go wrong is if you simply believe that it only works when you give away money <clears throat> or expensive tangible items. But it's simply not the case. Um, in fact, actually, for, from a startup's perspective, there's an inherent advantage to not having you know, lots of tangible resources to give away because it means you have to think about the intangible ones that are much, much harder to be copied. Mm. You know, insights into your industry, intriguing, insightful new pieces of information that might help a potential client, an, in, you know, an introduction to someone that's outside of their network but within your network that might further their advances, their business, help them in some way. These are the untangible things. I think these are the things that increasingly we're finding from the research are especially attractive to people. Mm. Um, and I think that in that instance, the, the young entrepreneur, the startup, those organizations that are smaller, that don't necessarily have the resources that a big corporation would have, they can play on a level playing field. Fantastic. That's great news. Music to the ears of startups. Now, a lot of our listeners will also be thinking about pricing and products of services. And your book, I think chapter 37, reveals a fascinating insight on how one pence can make such a difference in the propensity to buy. Can you talk about this influence in pricing? Yes, I can. So it's the, the 99 pence or the 99 cent uh, ending. Uh, a couple of interesting stories about how it actually came about. It was uh, uh, principally uh, started by Macy's, the retailer in the U.S., as a, a strategy against theft because it meant that their staff had to actually give change to people rather than just take the dollar or the $10 and put it in their pockets. So it's, that's how it came about. <clears throat> but here's why it has such an influence. It has uh, what we would call a category effect. So... And, and, and it's not necessarily the change, that 99 cents or 99 pence change at the end that it changes. It changes the first number in the price. So, for example, if, I, if, I, if I've got something at, let's say, 18 pounds, uh, sorry, 8 pounds rather, and I change the price to 7 pounds 99, the first number that I see changes from an 8 to a 7. It has that category effect. I can now say it's less than 8 pounds. And what we see first is super, super important when it comes to influence and persuasion. In fact, it's probably one of the most important aspects of the influence process. What people see or pay attention to first has a disproportionate influence over their evaluation or perception of the very next thing. So this idea of the 99 pence or the 99 cents price ending, what it, what it actually does is it 
shifts the very first thing that we see. It brings it down one. Um, even though it's only like a, pen, a one penny or one cent, it's a small thing, but it does make a big difference. And so in these studies that you uh, were reading in the book, <clears throat> researchers have done a variety of different studies where they price things um, and make only just like a one or a two pence difference in the price. So it brings down that first digit that they actually see. It's called the left digit effect. And it has a, a huge impact on how attractive that offering suddenly is. And the only change that's been made is like a penny. Mm-hmm. It actually bounces off onto the next question, which you kind of <clears throat> mentioned anyway, about the example of uh, how Carluccio's Italian restaurant includes the Vespa scooter on the menu. And I think that that uh, reflects what you just mentioned about the, the, the contrast in pricing. It does. It does. In fact, it, it's kind of intriguing, this, because what, what we're actually saying here is that when people are unsure or uncertain or not quite yet decided about whether they want to do business with you, whether they're going to be interested in partnering with you, want to listen to your message, um, are attracted to your proposal, Here's the intriguing thing. They don't look to you or the proposal or the proposition to determine whether they should pay attention to it. They look to something else that you compare it to. Okay? Mm. Now, so this is really interesting, and and there's a big, big insight. So let's just deal with the Carluccio's thing first. So you're absolutely right. When you open a Carluccio's menu, certainly the, the last menu that I opened, I saw a Vespa motor scooter. It's priced at 2,700 and odd pounds. I don't think they sell that many motor scooters in in Carluccio's, um, but I do know that it sure as hell makes their sandwiches and salads appear a lot less (laughs) expensive. Because compared to £2,770, you know, a £9 panini isn't that big a deal. Here's the insight for the small businessman. Here's the insight for the entrepreneur. Here's Here's the insight for the person that's pitching for business. It's not enough to have a good proposition or proposal. What you also need is a, something to compare it to that makes it shine. And here's a mistake that I see loads and loads of entrepreneurs make. They, they think about a proposal that they're going to write. They consider lots of different um, options and alternatives they could present to a customer. And then they, they consider one that they think is the optimum one. And all the other options that they've considered, they leave in the bin or they put it in the appendix at the back of the proposal. Mm-hmm. That's a mistake. What this evidence is saying is, is that you should briefly present that first. Here's a couple of options that I considered for you, but I am discounting for the following reason. Now pay attention to the proposal that I have come here to offer you today. You are creating a favorable comparison or contrast that allows your target proposal to shine. It's simple, it's costless, and it's amazing how many people forget or fail to do it. That's brilliant because the fear is they want to just focus on one item rather than flooding people with too much information. Yeah, but you can't focus on one item in order to evaluate it. You need to compare it to something. (laughs) And if you don't present that favorable comparison yourself, that client will do it for you or a competitor will come along and do it for you. Mm-mm, that's very, that's brilliant. Uh, there's so many nuggets of application in your book. And another one that screamed out to me, uh, Steve, was um, you said, instead of seeking for perfection, instead strive for error management. And this fits yep. in with the whole lean startup method. So talk to us about why it could be costly to be a perfectionist and uh, where error management can be incredibly influential. 
Well, the first area that it can be costly to be, effect, to be a perfectionist is the fact that actually it's just super hard to achieve perfection. So you spend lots of time, lots of effort, lots of resources, lots of money to try and achieve perfection, and rarely can we follow through with that. Um, so that's one thing. Here's another thing is, is that, you know, rarely when you think about a successful proposal, a piece of work, you've delivered a product, rarely is that success down to one, one thing. You know, it's, it's a lots of a combination of different things that have led to success. But when it comes to failure, that's simply not the case. You know, you could have the best proposition, the best business model in the world. One small, you know, chink in the armor is enough to bring the whole thing crashing down. So, you know, it turns out that, you know, paying attention to errors and mistakes and, and, and using them to inform you of small tweaks you can make can be a, a very, very productive thing to do. And there's a particular type of error <clears throat> that you would be especially minded to pay attention to. Um, uh, and, and that's the errors of other people <laughs> uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that clearly if others have made the error, you don't actually have to go to the cost and the trouble and the pain of actually going through it yourself. Um, and the second thing, of course, is, is that um, you know, when we look at errors that other people have made, we can actually recognize them for the clunkers and the blunders that they actually are. Um, that's a lot, lot more difficult when it's our errors that we're trying to um, uh, learn from. You know, oftentimes we'll think about lots of different reasons why something didn't occur that was outside of our control when actually it was an error of ours. Um, and that particular study you were talking about in that chapter uh, concerns the, the fact that those people who are trained to look for errors in a situation um, rather than best practices typically perform better after that training uh, than those groups that are solely focused and trained on best practices. Mm -hmm. And the, the fantastic example you yeah. gave was the lady who checked into a hotel and wanted to buy badminton rackets for her kids. Yeah, and the badminton rackets had already been loaned out to another uh, customer. And so what the hotel owner did was he sent one of his staff out to go and get two more badminton rackets. Um, and what's interesting about that, and his, the key here... Is, is not just to respond immediately to you know, customer demands. Um, I mean, if you can, that's probably a good thing. But the real key here is to understand that it was the fixing of a challenge and an issue that created that moment of influence. Mm. You know, she subsequently said, this is brilliant. This is wonderful service. Thank you. This is, this is just wonderful. I'm going to recommend this hotel now to my friends. And, and that's another important moment, actually. You know, you know, those moments when, as an entrepreneur, as a small business owner, you do valuable things for others and they say thank you, recognize that for the moment of influence that it is. You know, that's the moment when you ask for a referral. That's the moment when you, you know, ask or inquire whether there might be someone else in their network that might be interested in what you have to offer. Um, those moments of appreciation are like found gold. And we throw them away often, you know, think nothing of it. It's all part of the service, happy to help. Um, you know, here's a simple exercise that, that anyone in business can do. Just get a piece of paper and a pen and tally up over the course of a week or a month how many times someone genuinely says thank you to you. They are all opportunities to grow your business. Mm, that's good. That's a good exercise to do. And uh, fittingly, the final question, Steve, it's about peak end effect. Yeah. Uh, why, so why is this powerful and how can this be applied? Well, it's powerful because we don't report or um, evaluate experiences that we actually have with 
uh, other people, with companies, um, uh, at all. What we do is we report our memories of the experience. Let me give you an example. Um, you know, you could go out for dinner and you could have a really wonderful evening out with a friend or a partner uh, or your family. Uh, wonderful food, wonderful company, lovely wine. And then the, the waiter in the last few moments of that experience is rude to you. Um, and you have this, right, that's it. It's, it's, it's spoiled the whole evening. That, that last moment has spoiled the whole evening. It hasn't actually spoiled the whole evening at all. It's spoiled your memory of the experience. And that's what we use to determine whether we want to work with someone again, go back to a particular brand, you know, endorse or give a good review of an experience we've had, is our memory of it. And our memory of experiences is etched uh, with two moments in that experience. It's the peak moment of pain or pleasure during the experience and the very last thing that happens. That's why pop stars will always play their most uh, popular song on the encore. Mm-hmm. Send people home happy. You know, uh, if they play the same song at the beginning and a less popular one at the end, people go home less happy <laughs> because their experience, uh, their experience may be the same because they've experienced the same songs, but their memory of it is different. So, what's the implication for you? The implication is that um, knowing that people's uh, memories of experiences is etched by the high point and the last point is to ins- always ensure that you know, the last few moments of an experience are the most compelling, most memorable, um, because that will, ha- that will loom larger in people's memories when they think about whether they want to do business with you again in the future. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, those are all my questions, Steve, and uh, I'll thank you so much for your time. And do you have anything you'd like to add? I mean, do you have any coaching programs that people could sign up to? I mean, I'll link them all in, in, the, uh, in the post as well. Although we are based as a behavioral science organization, we do run training programs, uh, and occasionally we will run uh, public programs as well. We also have a website, influenceatwork.co.uk, and there's also the books website, uh, thesmallbig.com, where we actually have free-to-download animations of of, of many of these examples and these ideas from behavioral science put into practice and how you can use them in your business. So uh, they're freely available. And, of course, the book, The Small Big, is is also available now and widely available, I think, in most shops and online too. So... um, Fantastic. There's many ways in which you can access more uh, the information and the science that we talk about. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Steve. You are very welcome. Yeah. I know you do the same for me. <laughs> and you have a lovely day. And, uh, uh, yeah, big fan. Thanks for your time. All the best. Cheers. Right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's Anise again. Were you blown away or what? Do you remember the one about the reverend giving away money? You might recall it's called the reciprocity trigger. That's a personal favourite of mine. I've used it for over 15 years and it's powerful. So which one did you like the most? Tell me. I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear from you. So here's your challenge. Pick one from the various tips Steve gave and implement it today. Then come back and tell me how it worked. And you'll also find links to Steve's Influence at Work website below, plus there are some animation links below as well that explain some of the science, the science behind the persuasion. And you'll also find a link to buy the book, The Small Big. Now do yourself a favour and go buy the book. There are over 50 practical nuggets you can apply today to persuade people to, to buy into you. And if you like what you heard, please share it with your tribe, your followers, your fans. 
And if you haven't already done so, sign up, subscribe, so you don't miss out on all the great content that will help you grow your sales in a mindful way so you can keep pursuing your passion. This is Anise from Mindful Sales Training. Have a powerful day. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.